When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I think about where we are today, you know, in 10 years, we've built this strange corner of the internet where anyone in the world can have Bitcoins in their pocket, in their own custody. Not just that though, they can have dollars. They can have stable coins. People in Uganda and people in Colombia can directly interact with each other for pennies in transaction fees. That's something that was never possible before and is super powerful and super interesting. Hi everyone, this is Raoul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, and welcome to my podcast. Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. Peter, good to get you on Real Vision. It's a pleasure to be here, sir. Thanks for having me. Not at all. So look, as ever, I need to hear your story. How the hell did you get into crypto in the first place? What, what is your story? My story starts with an email. So uh, I had been working on some stuff in East Africa for a while, you know, not a lot of not spending a lot of time on the internet. And then I was in Singapore. In East Africa? And, where, whereabouts were you? Tanzania or something? Uh, in Uganda, actually. In Uganda, wow. Um, and... So then after that, I moved uh, to Singapore and, you know, there's not a lot going on in Singapore. And so eventually I started reading all my old, you know, emails and listservs and everything. And in graduate school, I'd been very interested in digital currencies. Um, And so I was on a lot of like listservs about digital currencies and stuff and uh, had written a, a paper about all the failures to create digital currency. And so people would send me new attempts and deep buried in that was uh, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin white paper. You know, and I, I started looking at the ecosystem and there were people running nodes. Um, there were people talking about Bitcoin on this forum called Bitcoin Talk. Uh, and I just sort of got immersed in the community there and met what uh, year my was co-founders. This? this is in like 2011, uh, 2012. And... You know, there weren't really Bitcoin or crypto companies back then. There were like people with random websites. Um, and that's how our project started. You know, it was a kind of a random website uh, to explore Bitcoin transactions with the, uh, we, you know, we did the first explore, as we call them now, right, or search engine. And, you know, it got really serious for me in 2013, actually, because, you know, we'd had a million signups at that point for the wallet. We had launched the wallet in 2012 and had a million signups, which is kind of crazy. And there was a day where 10,000 people were logged into the system. And we were like, wow, like that's a, that's a stadium of people using this product. And we thought like we should either like shut this down or, or do it right. You know, incorporate, maybe raise some venture capital. Really so you weren't future. even incorporated then? You were just a, wall- just a bunch Not of guys really, who no. built a wallet? <laughs> Yeah. So, so we just, you know, 
it was a good moment to reflect, like, what is the thesis here, right? And for me, what I really loved about crypto and, and still love about crypto today was this core thesis. And it was kind of based off two ideas. The first was that the internet would become the world's largest GDP sometime in the late 2020s or 2030. And that trend is largely proven out. I think, you know, we're very, that was kind of a crazy idea in 2013. 10 years later, that's a pretty established idea. We're going to hit that point, I think, probably somewhere in 2029, 2030. And every time in economic history, you've had a new financial dominant GDP emerge. You've gotten a new financial system that grows up to support that. And so it seemed really logical that crypto could be that financial system that you would need in this internet dominant GDP world. You would need a financial system built natively for the internet that worked, you know, that wasn't sort of like uh, the legacy system, which is basically like a bunch of scotch tape trying to adapt to the internet, but you'd want something that natively worked, right? And so that was a core thesis. The second core thesis was about human freedom and more importantly, human economic freedom. And so I grew up in Appalachia, spent a lot of time in Middle East and East Africa when I was younger. And to me, there were always this, you know, kind of theme of a lack of equity or fairness around, depending on where you're born, you're going to get access to very different financial system. You know, like where I grew up, you're going to have a lot of payday lenders, community banks. You know, if you grow up in Uganda, your currency is getting completely rebased every couple of years, 20% inflation, and you don't have choices as a human. And then one level from there, away from monetary policy, is just the ability to economically interact. So if I'm living in Uganda, you know, in 2012, I could probably talk to anyone in the world for free with Skype before WhatsApp became big. Yeah, the dark past. <laughs> but I had no way to economically interact. Right? So if I'm a developer living in Uganda, I can't just work for a company in America. There's no way to get the money back and forth, right? And so I felt like if you could give people the choice about what monetary system to be part of, what financial system to be part of, and if you could enable people all over the world to directly transact and economically interact with each other, you'd be really meaningfully increasing human freedom by increasing their economic freedom. And for me, the idea of being able to use technology to increase human freedom instead of decrease human freedom, which is mostly what technology has done, we can go down that rabbit hole, was a really powerful idea and a mission like worth spending your life on. And that's what got me into crypto and, and wanting to spend time on it was not really about, you know, the chance of a financial outcome or of, you know, anything else. It was this idea that you could impact human freedom and, and human economic freedom. And that's still what has me really excited about crypto, because when I think about where we are today, you know, in 10 years, we've built this strange corner of the internet where anyone in the world can have Bitcoins in their pocket, in their own custody. Not just that, though, they can have dollars, they can have stable coins. People in Uganda and people in Colombia can directly interact with each other, you know, for pennies in transaction fees. That's something that was never possible before and is super powerful and super interesting. And obviously, our space has lots of challenges today and lots of things to build still. 
But when I step back and I think about like, well, what have we really done over the last 10 years? We really have the beginnings, maybe the V.8 of a financial system for the internet. And we have something that is increasing human economic freedom around the world. And it's been a real privilege to work on that vision. And then it's been, you know, an absolute challenge of a lifetime and an honor, you know, to be CEO of a crypto company for 10 years. Yeah, exhausting is the word I would go for. Exhausting, but fun. So what do we need still to build out to let's talk about this broader financial inclusion vision before we get into other stuff. But what's what's left to build out for that really to be working, for it to be so? Because it's not there yet. There's some elements of it, as you say, but it's not happening yet. What what do we need? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, I think we have to continue to make it easier. The UX in crypto is still pretty challenging. And that's actually a, a piece that we're focused on today. You know, for people that live in America, you know, Coinbase has made it really easy to buy Bitcoins at this point or crypto or whatever. We're really focused outside of the U.S. and always have been. About 80% of our user base is outside the U.S. And there's sort of two missions that we're focused on on that UX front right now. One is making it really easy for people to onboard and offboard out of crypto um, in the rest of the world. So across Europe, you know, Latin America, um, and we do that in 193 countries today. Wow. But that's a huge challenge. Um, and, and, you know, could it occupy our whole day talking about all the challenges <laughs> and solutions? Um, and so we're really focused on that. And we've made a lot of progress there in the last two years. But there's a lot of work left to be done. You know, I want it to be seamless, instant, and totally reliable. That's really hard to do because we are, as a company, that link between the TradFi system, which is pretty broken, and legacy, and this new system of instant real-time settlement. So there's huge fraud challenges, operational challenges, but every day we come in and we try to make those a little bit better, right? And I think that's a really interesting business to be in because there's also a big moat to it because it's really hard to do. It's a hard thing to, you know, it's a, it's a real competitive advantage if you can unlock that globally. And so we're really focused on it. The second thing that I think we have to get a lot better at in crypto is today there's a huge split between the custodial sort of investing world in crypto and the on-chain using world in crypto, right? And then there's, of course, all the like high leverage margin trading venues, which is, uh, you know, active trading, which is not part of my business. When you think about that link between the custodial investing or purchasing crypto and then DeFi, there's this huge barrier. So you go onto whatever, you know, app, you buy some Ethereum, then you fund a MetaMask wallet, then you need to switch your MetaMask wallet from Ethereum to Polygon, then you need to somehow remember that you still have ETH on Polygon, then you need to like, it's just like a rabbit it's hole. All it's the way horrific, down. yeah. It's, it's horrific. horrific. And so what, we have a really interesting opportunity there as a company because our history is in building non-custodial first, right? And then later, about two and a half years ago, we added a custodial brokerage into the same app. People were like, why? Well, because we had a four-year vision to build a super app for crypto. What does that mean? Well, it's pretty simple. We want you to be able to onboard into our app, buy your first Ethereum, your first Bitcoin custodially, make it super easy. But then we want you to be able to take one swipe and be over into a DeFi wallet. 
and have every on-chain default wallet in one UX. No need to switch chains, no need to like toggle for balances, an easy bridge back and forth. And so you've got that DeFi experience and the custodial investing experience in one app. All of your data and funds are in one place. How do you make that even more useful to the consumer? Well, once you've made it easy for them to do all their crypto stuff, you need to make it easy for them to do all their daily financial transactions. And so we're building the ability to take direct deposits, which means you'll be able to take your paycheck into your account, credit cards, debit cards, and the long-term things like mortgages. And so the idea, and this is the really big business opportunity on the consumer side we're excited about, is there's going to be about a billion new consumers of financial services products in the next five, maybe seven years. These people are going to be under 35. They're going to have grown up in a world where crypto existed. And most of them- kind of Nigeria, India, you know, those big young Even in the US. When you talk to a US consumer, a 20-year-old college kid today is more interested in crypto financial services than they are in TradFi, right? How do you become the primary financial services provider to that consumer, right? You build an end-to-end product that takes care of all the things they need to do in their financial life. Put simply, I'm a very crypto-first consumer. By the end of next year, I don't want to need to have another account. I want to be able to shut down my bank accounts and really just do things from a crypto-first perspective. And that is a really big product vision, uh, and it takes time, but it's one that we're really excited about. To be in one app and be like, there's my transactional banking, here's my crypto investing, one more swipe, here's all my on-chain DeFi wallets. And you know, if we can build that product, that is going to solve a lot of that UX issue that we we're talking about. Because that makes crypto accessible, it makes it daily useful, and frankly, it really will drive human economic freedom. And that's really exciting. Yeah, because unlike all of the other kind of fintech solutions, neobanks, this is a globalized product. That's the thing that people don't really realize with crypto. It's the same product if you're in Uganda or if you're in Sri Lanka. It's the same thing. And that's, A, great for a scalable business, but B, super powerful when it comes to inclusion because we're already seeing it in in this distributed workforce world you can be a developer anywhere now and get paid basically global level wages. Yeah. That didn't happen before. You got wage arbitraged. And that's a real leveling of the playing field in the world that I think is is super interesting. And you know, look, I think, you know, and you and I have talked about this outside of this conversation, but the macro right now is very challenging, right? And, you know, we also run a very to say the least. We also run a large institutional business, right? Where we're a, a prime broker. Um, and on that side of the house, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about macro with clients and thinking about macro with clients. That is kind of going to be what it will be over the next year to two years. And I'm excited about that business. I love providing market access. At the end of the day, the thing that's going to generate meaningful change in the world is going to be the thing that you look back on and you're like, wow, we did something cool, is empowering individual human beings to have control over their financial future. So are you 
I mean, listening to you, you've got to be actually excited about the idea that CBDCs come. Yeah, I'm actually really excited about that. I think stable coins are the most important thing to happen in crypto in the last five years. Um, really, you know, they've impacted the market in good ways, bad ways, but the utility to consumers is huge. And just the onboarding, the ability to be able to, you know, the, the friction you've got with the existing banking system is your biggest nightmare. Yeah, and you know, that's been good and bad, the role of stable coins. I think stable coins have made it arguably too easy to launch like offshore platforms. Because before, one of the big challenges with an offshore platform is they didn't have, you know, US dollars, um, which made the trading experience not great. Now you have these stable coins, and so you have a lot of offshore. You know, you you have a lot of offshore venues that, frankly, wouldn't really exist today if there weren't stable coins. Um, and I do think that those offshore venues are probably are probably a, a big challenge for crypto going forward as it grows. Um, now, at the same time, stable coins are actually probably the most used crypto from a transactional standpoint. From a like. I'm someone in Argentina, you know, what do I hold? I probably hold USDC or USDT. And so they've generated a lot of real world value and utility, which I think is is really positive for the whole for the whole market. Um, it's super important that whole domain space has been really good. Doesn't it, just as a side note, doesn't it worry you that the entire world gets dollarized? <laughs> Because I mean, everybody's using dollars, right? I mean, there's there's almost no other stable coin that's used outside of dollars. Yeah, it's a very dollar world. That's true generally in the financial system, though. It's like it's very dollarized outside of China. So I'm not surprised by it. And I actually think that's one of the big macro challenges for the world. Not just, not because of stable coins. Stable coins are pretty small relatively, but the increasing dollarization of the world leaves a lot of countries without economic policy tools to help manage their economies. You know, and it's something going on right now is, you know, the Fed's drive to end inflation is wreaking havoc, you know, on a lot of economies that are really linked to the dollar, you know, the Eurozone, the UK, emerging markets. And I don't know if the net result of that in the long term is that people seek other currencies, you know, a basket the yen, or they seek out, you know, Bitcoin. Um, I think that's probably the least likely. But there is going to be a real reckoning on that. And it's a really interesting thing to me. I'm curious for your take on it. Like, a lot of the U.S.'s economic advantage is that everyone uses dollars, right? And the dollarization, you know, didn't really exist in the Volcker era. Now we have this dollarization of the whole world, it's a huge economic advantage for the U.S. But if we continue what we're doing right now on the Fed level, I think it's going to make it increasingly hard for countries to be part of the dollarized system. And like, where does that start breaking things for the I, U.S.? I, over yeah, the next I've always years? thought that the dollar dies of strength and not weakness for the reasons that you say. It's People don't realize, I mean, 87%, the, the U.S. is 25% of world GDP and 87% of world trade is in dollars. The U.S. is 100% of world GDP in debt. It's the most indebted any country's ever been in history. And 
the world probably owes another 200% of GDP in dollars. So it's, it's a terrifying dollar world. And then you've got this weird situation where you're a South African exporting gold to China and you have to use dollars. You're, everybody has to use dollars in the middle of this global trade. And all I can imagine is that the world is going to walk away from this. Even the Europeans can't deal with it. Look at the UK right now. It's basically the US bond market and the Fed that's trashing the gilts market that's blowing up the pension system. At some point, they're all going to have to say enough is enough. Does that mean some sort of plaza accord or does it mean a bifurcation or a basket system? I don't know, but I think your hunch is right. This is, it's becoming unsustainable. And it, it really is. And what's interesting when you go on a level from there is away from the economic policy level, you know, these are also our closest allies, right? And, and we're basically running them over with the Federal Reserve. <laughs> and I don't know at what point that breaks, but it's it's super concerning to me. And I think pretty dangerous for the world. Um, I do think we're going into a period of unprecedented uncertainty. Um, and that is going to be the theme of the next year, really, is that uncertainty. Um, and we see that in our institutional business, you know. So for context there, you know, we serve about a thousand clients actively. We have another couple thousand onboarded. We run a spot execution desk as well as a derivatives desk and custody and, you know, all these sort of prime broker activities. And we trade a lot of flow, a lot of volume. Right now, everyone is trying to reduce and hedge risk. There is no risk seeking in the institutional side of crypto right now. It's all risk down or risk manage. And it's really because of this idea of uncertainty. Um, and I think, you know, no one really knows what's going to happen next. Um, and that uncertainty is very challenging for the global economy. You kind of have to wonder, like, when it all goes up in smoke. Um, it's very, very unclear uh, to me right now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, to me, I feel like we're closer to the end than the middle. Just seeing what's happening in the bond markets, they've become totally unanchored from inflation expectations, GDP growth, everything. It's just liquidity. There's no buyers of bonds. And we know the answer. The Japanese have always told us the answer in advance, which is <laughs> yield curve control. And the UK is getting into the yield curve control game again. And the Europeans will be there and the US will have to be there. So it feels that there is only one answer that we've got left in this financial system that's broken, which is turn the taps back on. Arthur Hayes made that point very clear to me. He's like, it's the only game in town because it works for the politicians. Asset prices go up and it saves the system from implosion is by devaluing the currency, the denominator by... 
and I think I think that's probably true because you also need to more or less inflate away the debt relative to like economic output. The question for me though is, you know, in the U.S., we have a, a slightly more independent Fed than some countries, and it seems like we have, you know, kind of two political things going on right now that are, are challenging. One is the Fed really wanting to be a, the Fed that tamed the inflation monster. You know, that's clearly a very important talking point for them. They could have just said, like, our inflation target is now 5%. Have a nice day. You know, we're raising point, you know, 25 points for the next eight quarters till we get to 5%. But they said, no, our target is 2%. And, and you know, let's blow out the world market. So that's one thing that's, you know, unclear to me is, you know, Yes, it works for the politicians, you know, you'll control, but I'm not sure that the politicians and the Fed are on the same page. And Arthur's point was, the person who owns the chain is the politician and the central bank at the end of the chain, because in the end, it's voters. Yeah. And you buy votes. It's become a game. You know, it's like the old uh, election cycle trading strategy, right? Like you always want to, you want to be long into the presidential election, but that's pretty, you know, the Fed has staked out a very strong position that I think is going to be hard for them to walk back from, even, even if it's, you know, defies logic not to. Uh, And then I think the other thing that, you know, we kind of all have to be aware of in the world is we have a land war in Europe, a really big one. And, you know, when that happened, that was originally like, oh, this is going to be six day weeks and we'll all get back on with our lives. You know, we're close to a year of that conflict now. And, you know, resolution of it looks further, not closer. Um, and it seems to be escalating. Right. I think, you know, particularly challenging that you have on one side, one of the largest energy exporters. And on the other side, you have the largest food exporter outside of America. Right. And, you have politicians that have made choices over the last five to 10 years to deprioritize nuclear energy, deprioritize, you know, natural gas extraction. There's a real lack of energy and food in the world today, which is going to keep driving inflation no matter what the Fed wants to do. And that's a really challenging construct for countries in Europe and the emerging markets because they have that hitting them on one side, right? And then they have the dollar monster hitting them on the other side. And that's where it comes back to me, like, what's going to break? <laughs> like, because that is a almost unbearable amount of pressure for most of these economies. And that's really interesting for crypto, because crypto was built, and this kind of comes back to the beginning of our conversation, crypto was built to, like, generate a different choice, right? I don't know if the price of Bitcoin is going up or down over the next three months, I've never known. But what I do know is it seems insane to me if you're in this current economic system to not have a portion of your available net worth into an alternative that is kind of away from all of this, right? And I realize that Bitcoin is traded with equities and traded with the M1 liquidity supply for sure. But if things really go haywire, that is not going to happen. And, and we're seeing that already. Like when I look at the trading data and the money flows data in crypto, it is now decoupling from equities. 
And you, I think you've kind of ground through a lot of the, the fallout from the huge 2021 year. But in a world where countries are getting pounded from one side from the Fed, they're getting pounded from the other side from, you know, rising costs of energy and, and food, something is going to break. And when it does, I'm really excited that a bunch of us have spent the last decade building crypto as an ecosystem to a point of enough robustness to offer the world an alternative choice. We can't control if people take that choice, right? But if this had happened 10 years ago, they wouldn't have had an alternative choice, right? There would be no alternative choice. And so when I think about like, what is, you know, people talk about the time, you're like, you've been doing this so long. Well, what are you really excited about? I'm like, look, we are going into a very troubling crisis period of the world. And this time, unlike in 2008, 2009, consumers, institutions have a choice about pulling some portion of their money, their value outside of this system that looks like it's very much in trouble and putting it into a new one. But are we not creating some of the same problems all over again with the leverage? I mean, humans just are obsessed by leverage, right? They're obsessed by it. And so here we go again, and we create leverage all over again. And so is it much less riskier? Yes, you can't confiscate it as easily, but it still has all the other elements. Well... Yes and no. So the first thing you is like base it is the other one. You can't debase it, right? It's like it's def- like both the two biggest assets in our space now are both deflationary, ETH and Bitcoin, right? That's very different. You can directly custody it, right? So you're not exposed to the financial institutions themselves. And then, you know, on the leverage front, like the thing that I think is wild about crypto is, you know, leverage was introduced to crypto six, seven years ago. And the crypto market has never failed because of it. Companies yeah. have failed. Trading markets have failed. But there have been no bailouts. Like we had a market go down 80% in violent fashion. Violent fashion twice in the last 3 years. And yes, companies lost money, you know, people lost money, companies went under, but the crypto market just kept grinding. Right? And if you were holding 100 BTC in your non-custodial account, you still have 100 BTC today. Yeah, it was nothing. It didn't matter. Your price went up and down, but nothing else happened. And that's completely different from the TradFi system, um, where that would not be the case if it were not for government intervention. Um, And I think the thing people don't understand is every time the government intervenes in the market, everyone has a little less money at the end of the day. Everyone has a little less purchasing power at the end of the day. That's right. Right. Um, and so, yeah, you know, <laughs> leverage in crypto is sometimes not very helpful. Um, but at the end of the day, the system keeps keeps chugging. And also what's been surprising is, yes, CeFi had its nightmare over the summer. DeFi, apart from the odd hack, has been extraordinarily robust. I think... I'm hesitant to say that DeFi is extraordinarily robust because if you look at losses, at the end of the day, all that matters is losses. And if you look at losses, there's been less in the CeFi space this time around than there has been in the DeFi space. 
if you look at the you know the Binance, the BNB, BSC chain hack, you look at the wormhole hack, you know, there's like I think it's like three billion of losses in the last twelve months. And then on the CFI side, it's you know, it's less than that. So I'm not sure that either one's a whole lot more quote safe. I do think a lot of the margin liquidation worked on the on-chain products pretty well, um, which in some ways surprised me how well it worked. So I agree with you on that. I just think that ultimately at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how you lose the money. It just matters that you lost it. (laughs) That's pretty true. How does DeFi get around KYC issues? Because that's another nightmare for everybody because they're all, as you said, they're kind of offshore entities. We've got a bunch here in the Cayman Islands, you know, Aave, MakerDAO, all of these people. And it doesn't fit in with the financial system because it needs to be KYC. But the institutions are interested, as you know. They all want to do it, but they can't. How does this get solved? You know, I think in the long term, it's going to be solved by holding your identity on chain, which is something that we want to do. We want to be able to say, okay, look, we've verified 30 million people. If you're an app builder and you want someone to use your app and you want them to be verified, you can ping us and will cryptographically attest that they've met this compliance standard. That's going to take years because you have to figure out compliance standards and it's country by country. But it's actually probably one of the biggest long-term values in our business. Uh, same for Coinbase, is to be able to interact with dApps and attest of the level of compliance a customer has undergone. Stepping away from that, we run a regulated business. We hold licenses all over the world. We KYC people, you know, we have banking partners, payment partners. So we've gone down that road. And I think that that is a reflection of how big we think crypto is going to be. So I tell people if I thought crypto was going to be a niche market forever, maybe you don't worry about all that because maybe the regulator doesn't care. I've always planned that crypto is going to be like the second or the second and then first biggest financial system in the world. And in that world, the regulator cares a lot. (laughs) And so if you believe that, then you have to start building with this compliance from day one, right? Which is what we've, what we focused on. I think a lot of the protocols are going to struggle with that as they mature and become bigger. Um, I think it's going to be really challenging to, you know, run a, you know, know, decentralized exchange and, you know, not have anyone doing any kind of market safety or, or KYC or anything like that. Um, But that's going to have to be figured out. Like regulators are going to have to figure out how to adapt standards to on-chain products and that largely hasn't really even begun yet another question is we've talked a lot about cryptocurrencies you know eth bitcoin you know the usual stuff but obviously the tokenization of the world is catapulting forwards nfts ticketing poaps all of this stuff how does that fit into your vision of what you guys do because it's not just about money it's actually assets. Mm. It's kind of, it's the whole kind of digital asset world. How, how does that, how does that play into your vision as well? You know, our vision is just to build infrastructure and products to make it easy for consumers and then institutions to interact in the market, to get access to those assets and products. And so for us, we want there to be an infinite amount of high quality assets on crypto protocols. So we don't provide access to assets that are not on crypto protocols. 
So, you know, we're not going to help you trade stocks until stocks are on a crypto protocol. Till there's Google, till there's Google on Ethereum. We're not going to help you trade Google. And so for us, we want everything to be tokenized, right? And the way that we build our product is very generalized. It can store kind of any asset that's on a crypto protocol. But ultimately, you know, our place in the market is not to create these assets or, you know, to create these protocols. It's to enable access to them. And that's like, that's our mission. Our mission is like, how do we make it possible for anybody to access this stuff and to do it with their own custody. How many wallets and, have you guys got now? Uh, there's 81 million signups. Yeah, and how many of those are active? Any one point, you think? It really depends. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Right now, it's all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but there's, there's 33 million that are verified, um, which is kind of, that's the question you're really asking. Yeah, amazing. So it's a lot. You know, it's more than, it's more than a stadium of people now. <laughs> a bit more so okay outside of the <clears throat> blockchain.com side what gets you excited in the space now whether it's a protocol you're interested in something you're investing in or something you're observing saying this is really cool i'm really interested in this what excites peter um two spaces uh and then a third business opportunity the first is I'm really interested in the cross-chain protocol space. So, you know, there's been a lot of bridges over the last two years that has mostly ended disastrously. Um, <laughs> a lot of a lot of losses. I'm really interested in how do you build a chain to connect chains because I think that the story of the next three or four years is going to be an explosion in app chains. I think that you know you're going to have crypto apps that reaches scale where they're going to build an app chain to support them. It'll probably be a Cosmos copy or an Ethereum copy. You know, what people don't realize is that, you know, for example, BSC is a Cosmos copy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of the chains you see in the world today are Cosmos or, you know, Tenderman IBC, and then just modified slightly. I think you're going to get more and more of that. Um, and so you're going to have this big need to go between all these chains. And as a, a you know, consumer products developer, I need something, some piece of plumbing that allows me to move a customer's money across chains so they can access the VEX product on each chain seamlessly. And so, you know, I think the bridging space is not going to work. We're going to need cross-chain protocols to do this. So I'm spending a lot of time in that space. Uh, I made a, made a large investment there last year. This, that chain will come to market in the next couple of months. So, um, Maybe we'll we'll talk about it then. They're they're in, you know, secret scroll stealth mode. Um, and then the other space I'm excited about is zero knowledge proofs mm. and whether or not those can be used for better identity management. I wrote a whole thread on this yesterday on Twitter yeah. actually about this. I saw that and, and most of that I would echo. I think being like the old man in crypto now, I always am kind of like keen to caution people it's going to take years. But I think it will take years, but it will be the best way to manage identities online. And I think it's going to unlock a huge amount of value for a consumer and a lot of value for companies that have you know, big consumer user bases like ours. The third business opportunity I'm excited about and spending a lot of time on is, you know, at the end of 2021, the, one of the biggest problems in our business was there was a lot of platform companies 
in both institutional and consumer crypto that were content to lose a lot of money acquiring customers. So it's like sign up and do institutional trading with us. We'll lose money on your flow, you know, onboard here and we'll pay interest rates that are so high that there's no way we're going to make money on you. When you're in a business that tries to make money and indeed made money last year, it's pretty hard when you have that going on, right? All of that got wiped out. Like the companies went under, they got liquidated. You know, if you look at the competitive field in platform crypto today for what we do, you know, it's kind of back to just Coinbase on consumer. And they're doing their thing in America. We're doing our thing outside America. And then on institutional, you know, where we would have had 10 competitors at the end of last year, we maybe have three. And so if you're a platform crypto company getting ready for the next cycle and the next wave in crypto right now is super exciting because the field has been cleared out and you're going to have a lot of room to run because it's not just the big companies you've heard of, like, you know, all the, all the ones you've seen in the news. It's also the small regional players that have been wiped out. So like our local competitor in the Netherlands, it's gone. Right. And so the room to run in this next cycle is going to be huge. And investors right now are obsessed with protocols, gaming plays, and, you know, NFT marketplaces. Right. Investors don't want to invest in an old fashioned crypto platform company that helps consumers and institutions get into crypto and use crypto. They're like, that's lame. That's, that's some, you know, who needs that? And that's awesome because the reality is without these platform companies, there is no crypto market, right? <laughs> that's right. It's like but if you're investors the, you're think the, it's lame. You're the gatekeeper to the entire thing. Yeah. If I mean, think grows, about this. you guys grow. Think about this. This is crazy. Over the last three years, our platform is responsible for 30% of all Bitcoin transactions. We've done 1.2 trillion in volume, right? But what we do is not gaming. It's not, you know, uh, NFTs. It's not a protocol. So it's not sexy, right? And so that's exciting because it was sexy for a long time and it, it meant a lot of competition. Now it's not sexy. And a lot of the competition has been wiped out by that catastrophic market moment that we had earlier this year. And so the space going forward, you know, for us to play is just huge. And getting ready for that system tooling, product quality, product integrity, platform stability is my big focus right now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. But the, as ever, the moment in time where the opportunity is everywhere, as you're pointing out, is the moment in time the capital is nowhere. Yeah. You know, it's That's always true. the bloody case, right? It's like this is the time that capital allocators should be deploying because, as you said, 
The space is cleaned up. We know where the trend is going. The trend hasn't changed. So you've got a group of survivor incumbents now that are only going to grow as the space grows. So it's like, it's about as good a setup. And then you look at the Coinbase share price and it's through the floor. You're like, really, guys? You don't get it. It's amazing to me. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of the, I think the challenge for Coinbase and look, they're the world's number one crypto company. Like, doesn't matter what private. More than Binance, do you think? Yeah. You know, they have a bigger user number. They're properly regulated. You know, they've done more to make crypto happen than any other company. And, you know, they've made more money. They have financials that are audited. Like, you know, look, Binance is definitely number one or number two. But to me, Coinbase is probably number one just because they even have more staying power. You know, they've been number one a long time, right? They are the king. And it's wild, you know, no matter what the private markets tell you anybody else is worth or not worth, like Coinbase is the king. The challenge for Coinbase right now is that they just have such a high cost structure yeah, that it really makes investors nervous. And when so when I talk to, you know, people, institutional investors, they think Coinbase is an amazing company, but they're very worried about the cost structure of the company. And I think, you know, that's, you know, that's something that is going to be the case as long as they have that view that they're willing to lose a lot of money when the market's down, to make a lot of money when the market's up. They're going to get punished a lot when the market's down because, you know, it, it is going to be big losses. It's, you know, it's, it's just a, because of the cyclicality of the space and how wild it is, it's very difficult to manage for people. I mean, you know, people like, I mean, Novo must be going through a nightmare right now because you try and scale up. You know where the opportunity is. The market falls 70%. You're like, oh, really? I have to wait this out again. It's like, it's not yeah. easy. You don't look too old and haggard, but you should do by now because this is it's, it's stressful. You know, the secret is I feel old and haggard. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, there's a reason that there's only two of us that were – Brian and I are like the last two CEOs from that first wave. And it's not like there was only two or three crypto companies. There were hundreds. You know, it's just like it's been a death march. Um, and I think, you know, and some people have stepped down and their companies are still still with us. But um, for the most part, everybody went bankrupt. And, you know, it really requires a mentality to navigate through these chapters. And I think it would be... Now, it would be crazy for me to say that it's not psychologically challenging. What did you do right then? What did you and Brian do right? You know, assuming there's always some luck there somewhere, but let's, but what did you do right that allowed you to stay the course that other people haven't done? Well, Brian discovered the best money machine in crypto early, which was helping U.S. consumers on iOS buy Bitcoins. So a lot of their successes stemmed from that. Um, they did it first. They do it really well. And it's a huge, you know, it's 80% of the revenue. I think iOS alone is probably 70% of the revenue. We survived because we kept it lean and tight. You know, we didn't discover a magic money tree early. We only really started monetizing the business three years ago. Right. And the revenue growth, you know, we grew revenue more than 10x three years in a row. 
when we started monetizing. Bloody hell. And when you look at this year, this year will be well above 2020, right? It won't clip 2021, but it'll be well above 2020. And so, you know, we monetized later, but the thing that we did well was control costs. We stayed very lean. Because you weren't monetizing. Lean. So you kind of learned how to fight from the trenches. Yeah. We fought, you know, we fought, you know, the battle of inches. And, and today we're still very lean and focused on operational excellence where we're 400 people today, which for our, you know, the size of our retail user base and the size of our institutional business, very lean. Um, Even with 400 people, I'm surprised they're not all in, in your compliance department. I mean, you've got a lot of bloody jurisdictions to deal with. Yeah, we've built a lot of automated uh, infrastructure. We do have people that work uh, in customer support and compliance operations that are contractors, and they don't figure into that 400 number. So the fully rack number is probably bigger. Um, but yeah, we've just tried to stay really lean and, and operationally tight. So let's get more optimistic. Where's the growth market? So we talked about kind of areas in the business overall. Let's talk about countries a little bit. Because you guys are truly global, right? That's what's really interesting about your business. You see a lot of really interesting things. Where are you seeing the biggest potential for growth? Where are you thinking this is where we need to focus? Well, I can tell you that the data tells us that U.S. consumers are the least interested in crypto of any of our user bases right now. So people in Europe and the U.K., a lot of their interest has returned. Um, folks in Latin America never left. The U.S. consumer crypto market, for us at least, the data says is pretty flatline. But in Europe, it's picking up. Um, I think that's really interesting. I think of crypto in some ways as like leading. I know you believe this too, as leading the market. And we went through a period where all of you know it was just sell, sell, sell across every business line. And now we're starting to see folks who are sort of closer to the oncoming crisis. You know, consumers in Europe, Italy, UK, they're starting to pick up and it's it's starting to switch to a buy flow. For the reason you said, you know, this this parallel financial system, people see trouble and they start thinking, you know what, I better switch over. Yeah. And so we're seeing that happen now. And so for us, you know, we're really focused in in the rest of the world because building that rest of world brokerage, like I said at the beginning of the call, that rest of world product, it's very difficult product challenge, high barrier to entry, but that's what's great about it because it creates a real moat. What do you think about India? You kept away from it because of its inconsistent regulatory environment or are you trying to wade through the mess that is the Indian bureaucracy? Because it feels like it's still wide open there, right? Because Wazirx, there's only a few. Yeah, we don't provide fiat rails in India. So you can't link your Indian bank account to our wallet in India. But you can use our product in India. You just have to figure out how to get the crypto somewhere else. I am pretty excited about India in the long run. I think that we need some more regulatory clarity in India before we move into that market. Um They've kind of moved around a lot. We've had engagements with them. I think they're excited about it in the long term, but figuring out how to 
deal with it in the short term. One of the challenges for them is that most of the players in the Indian space right now are folks that are on the risky edge of crypto services providers. So they don't have in India like a, you know, the equivalent of like Coinbase in the US or us in Europe to work with policymakers. And I think that's probably a little challenging for them. Um, Because they're they're very, you know, they're spending a lot of time trying to get behavior that they're not a fan of under control, right? But that comes sometimes at the expense of defining what you do want people to do. Um, But I think India will be a, a huge market for us three or four years from now. Um, but maybe not as much today. Final question to loop us back to the beginning. What about Africa? It kind of needs Ah. to happen. What are you seeing there? It is happening. Um, It's one of our fastest growing regions. We're figuring out our payments approach there. We've tried to experiment with a few things. If you think doing payments in Europe, Latin America, and the US are hard, uh, wait till you try Africa. (laughs) Uh, Nigeria in particular. So we're experimenting, we're figuring it out. It's growing really fast. Um, and it's definitely going to be a market that we figure out next year in terms of that global payments network. And that kind of segues me into something that's really interesting about building the payments infrastructure and, and fiat offboard, you know, sort of infrastructure that we are. At the end of this, you know, by 20, the end of next year, we will have a point-to-point money transfer network that is rivaled only by Visa. And instead of doing what Visa does, which says, let's charge you, you know, you to issue a card, let's charge consumers every time you swipe, let's charge merchants every time you swipe, you know, all the way around, we're gonna say, you know, someone in America, put money into the crypto ecosystem, send it to someone in Nigeria, they can take it out, we don't get in the middle. That's wild when you think about how the world's going to change. Like, no one has managed to build a payments infrastructure like that since Visa and MasterCard built theirs. And by the end of 2023, we'll be on on par with them in terms of the ability to cross-connect markets, people, and places. Um, And we were able to do that because crypto gave us this amazing growth story and this amazing access to customers and capital, right? And so we could bootstrap that up. We could build a whole new network, a whole new system. And that's, you know, one of the coolest parts of crypto is that when you get to rebuild a financial system, build a whole new one, you're really able to to just do things differently. And it's going to append a lot of the models that are in the market today. But, you know, it's going to take more time. Like when I started working on this full time, I thought it was a 20 year journey and we're 10 years through that. Um, and I still think there's another, you know, at least five to 10 years left to get to, to get to the place that we really want this to be. But I'm so happy today that 10 years in, we've made enough progress that as the world goes into another economic moment of reckoning, people have a choice. Almost everyone around the world has a choice to either totally or partially offboard from the current system and be part of this other system. And that's a really powerful message for the world today. Love it. Love it, my friend. Listen, fantastic conversation, both terrifying about where we are now, but also we know where we're going. We just have to get through 
whatever this is in the meantime. And as you say, it might actually be yet another moment that plays in crypto's favor. Maybe Europe, the UK is picking something up, which is we do need this future financial system. And you know, thank God you're building it and, and a few others are too, because people are going to need it because everything is broken. Absolutely. All right, my friend, great to see you. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Really interesting talking to Peter because he's kind of somber in his approach to this, which is we're in a bad macro environment. Things are difficult. The crypto market's going through a big purging. But what was interesting is hearing about the opportunities that he sees in front of him. The opportunities to follow his mission of financial inclusion, the global level, and also where the UX needs to get to, to get more people into the system. And the fact is, he truly understands he's building a parallel financial system that's desperately needed now more than ever. Hi, thanks for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed listening, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming literally everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, everything. That's why in 2020, we launched Real Vision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital assets video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 300,000 members around the world understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation and maybe of all time. And even better, Real Vision Crypto is completely free. All you need to do is input your email address and you get full access to all of the videos and the incredible emails too. Please visit realvisioncrypto.com. That's realvisioncrypto.com and start learning about this incredible world.